It came a lot from Dennis Lee, his family. They gave us different seeds to start, so like the mustards, the chilies, the perilla. We just knew we had to save our own seeds in the beginning and then started refining that as we went. People just responded so quickly to see like something that was really explicitly about Korean food. And so suddenly people were just like giving me seeds that were from their family or seeds that they wanted a little bit of access to. So they're like, oh, you could grow this. Can you just give me a little? And so it just sort of evolved from there where suddenly we became this clearinghouse for people to just like send us seeds because, you know, they really believe in sort of like the food politics of somewhere like the Bay. But we're limited in having access to like Korean vegetables grown organically. And so... They were constantly having to like choose and prioritize like do we want to like omit these really significant things and these like things we want our kids to grow up eating or do we want to prioritize general health and well-being. Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. I'm Chelsea Wills. This season, we're talking with visionary chefs, gardeners, farmers, organizers, artists, and scientists. These people have shaped the food movement in California. We talk with a diverse group of California's rebel food makers about the ways they do things in their farms, kitchens, and communities that reshape the way we think about food. This show is made by Devin Sampson and Chelsea Wills. Special thanks to the support from Cal Humanities, Food First, and Rebecca Murillo for making this season possible. Kristen Leach runs Namu Farm at the Sonol Ag Park east of the San Francisco Bay. She grows vegetables for San Francisco restaurant Namu Gaji and seeds for the Kitazawa Seed Company. Kristen grows both traditional and whimsical produce, focusing on Korean varieties and using organic, biodynamic, and permacultural practices without any fossil fuels. She discovered the foods of her Korean heritage further on in her life as she was adopted as an infant and grew up in New York, where she later became a part of the urban gardening movement. Thanks so much for, for uh, taking the time in the middle of a bunch of harvest to, to be on Delicious oh, Revolution. Yeah, thank and thanks for the farm tour. That was, a, that was totally <laughs> amazing. We just saw uh, an incredible diversity of uh, lots of plants I've, I've never <laughs> even heard of. So, um, yeah, so thanks so much. Um, I guess I wanted to start by, by talking about um, what, what's the food of your childhood? What kind of food did you grow up eating? Uh... Um, I think just sort of standard American food, what you could expect in sort of a typical household. It was just, um, yeah, pretty basic. Like, I definitely ate a lot of vegetables and, um, things that like sometimes me or my brothers could prepare at home by ourselves. Um, but we definitely like sat down and ate dinner and, you know, like my parents put forward some effort. They both worked, but you know, made an effort that at least one of them would be there to kind of make something. And, um, yeah, but typical, you know, hamburgers, sandwiches, like just chicken. And, um, my dad worked as a caterer for a little while. Um, and so sometimes he would bring home stuff that felt like really fancy, but looking back is kind of awful, like Hawaiian (laughs) chicken with pineapple slices and maraschino cherries and, um, but I appreciate they were really resourceful. Yeah, I loved food as a kid. So even just basic things like 
you know, when I was a teenager, I started doing Food Not Bombs in New York and, um, you know, started having these certain ideas about food and its significance. And so I would even go around and, like, you know, get bagels from the dumpster at night and, you know, scavenge for food. And my parents were kind of, like, into it. Like, they weren't ever like, oh, this is weird, what are you doing? Like, they would kind of assign me or my brothers to, like, go do that, and then we'd, like, give it out or, like, have bagels frozen. I mean, we're from Long Island, and so bagels is, like, the main part of the food pyramid, I think. <laughs> bagels and pizza, that's, like, all people eat. Um, and so I, I appreciate things like that. Like, I, I appreciate sort of... I don't think I, like, wax poetic about any particular things they made, like or necessarily feel ever compelled to recreate them. But I appreciate, like, their work ethic and their resourcefulness and not wanting to waste anything. Like, even my parents came out here and visited once, and we were harvesting beans, and poor Will was in the field, and a bean had fallen out of his bag. My dad, like, picked up the bean and, like, tapped him on the shoulder and was like, there's one thing you should know about us, Will. It's we don't like waste. <laughs> it, like, terrified the whole rest of the day of this, like, weird man, like, following him around, pointing out every mistake. But so I think more than particular kind of food, it was an attitude towards it and the value of it and um, just knowing that it was, like, important. Yeah. So you um, you got involved with Food Not Bombs. I did, too, in Seattle. So uh, um, you started cooking yeah. Big quantities of things. Yeah, a lot of vegetable oil with things. <laughs> just like a lot of weird things that, again, I don't think I'm ever like, oh, I should make that again. <laughs> think anyone should eat. But um, yeah, it definitely informed a lot of just like interesting thinking. And yeah, it was pretty significant to be like an adolescent. It left like an imprint, more the sentiment about it. So. And, and for you, which. Um, did you start getting interested in, in farming first, or did you start getting interested in, in Korean food and all these crazy varieties of, of, oh. of plants and animals? Uh, farming first, yeah. 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 Uh, I always liked gardening. Like, my grandparents um, let us put in a garden at their house and um, just have a lot of memories as a kid of doing that and really liking it. And then, um, yeah, again, with you know, through Food Not Bombs, just started hanging out around, like, a lot of the community gardens. It was just, like, really kind of integrated in the in the locale of, like, the part of New York where I was spending a lot of time as a teenager. And so, um, yeah, and I think that, although, again, like, I didn't learn necessarily a lot of just, like, hard science or practical things about gardening, like, it made a big impression about just the role that spaces like that play in connecting people, the way that food connects people. Being in such a diverse place like New York, you just hear people exchanging stories about, you know, like food and recipes. And it's just so heartfelt um, that it just felt so compelling. It wasn't like so cerebral as other things. Um, and at that time, like it was the areas where I was spending time were you know, being really impacted by lots of things. Like Giuliani was the mayor through all of my adolescence. And, um, you know, he came down hard on a lot of those art spaces and a lot of those gardens. And when I just saw the way people responded, the that they were just like completely unwilling to like let that go without a fight, it spoke to me about like what, why people would just really dig their heels in like that. Yeah, 
And, um, and when did you start gardening yourself or when did you start farming? Uh, that happened more when I moved to uh, Washington State. Yeah. So I lived in Olympia for like eight years when I was younger and then got to, I mean, that place is just like full of both small scale organic farms and just people that like grow their own food. It's just like a basic skill that if you live in Olympia, you're going to be in like probably a weird band at some point and you're going to learn how to grow your own food. It's just like you can't really escape without doing probably both of those things, but at least one of those things. So, yeah. yeah. And, you, and you were at Evergreen? Or was it? I did sort of, I mean, I went to Evergreen the way that most people did. I took one class and then a teacher there had just sponsored me to do contracts. Um, but that was more in the realm of like art. I had gone to a state school in New York, uh, FIT, studying illustration. And then um, when I moved, of course, Evergreen would like take those weird, really specific credits. So I just kept on doing art there. Did you, how did you learn farming? How did, did you just, you picked it up by osmosis in Olympia? Or did you work on a farm? I mean, I think I, yeah, maybe I should credit Olympia osmosis for some of that knowledge. Um, but I, you know, most of the time I've worked, it was in some element of food service or as just like a laborer on a farm. And so, um, yeah, for the most part, it was just kind of coming into it because I had the opportunity to, and then like learning how much I did actually like the work of it and then wanting to learn more. Um, so definitely like kept up some small gardens. Like I, um, worked on a friend's small organic farm, uh, outside of Olympia and, um, yeah, so gained some practical skills of just like the pace and the manual labor aspect, I suppose. And then, um, probably a couple years before I moved here, maybe like, yeah, 10 years ago or so now, um, just had different questions about how we were growing food. And even though my experience was solely in organic food production, um, just felt like there were just certain things that I didn't know in terms of how sustainable that could truly be, um, given lots of shifting things, both with climate change and just with knowing that, uh, yeah, just certain things revolving around other resources and their availability to me. Like I started to question that, or if I wanted to keep investing and assuming that I could have access to, you know, oil and other things all of the time. And so decided to try to just study as much as I could on my own. And that's where kind of being in proximity to Evergreen was really helpful because they have a good sustainable ag program. And so I just went to their school bookstore and saw what their, um, what their classes were kind of learning and then got those books from the library. So just spent a couple years just like buckling down and like reading and trying to teach myself soil biology um, and a little bit of just basic plant biology and botany um, and so it was just like a funny sort of self-directed, like just reading a lot. I have like all these old notebooks where I'm just like transcribing like weird textbooks and trying to learn, uh, that way. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, um, when did you, when, or when did you first start farming? When did you first start doing it for more than just a, a garden? Oh, um, so when I moved to California, I continued to just work on farms, 
just as basically a farmhand and not having like a lot of you know like room to express like my own opinion about anything so that's fine um and then i managed a farm in Bolinas, and that was the first time where um you know the owner dennis at paradise valley he he was coming from a similar place like when i remember interviewing there and he made some reference i understood it was a reference to korean natural farming and he's like a real early california organics guy and i was like wait are you talking about master cho and korean natural farming He's like, yeah, like, how do you know about this? It's like, well, I'm Korean. This is like kind of my birthright. You're just like an old hippie white guy. How do you know about this? Like, oh, I saw this other teacher who's popular on Hawaii, like did a series of classes in in California. And I just really fell in love with it. It's like, oh, I guess I have to work here. I was like, no one else has ever kind of mentioned this. And at that point, it was just still very nascent as an idea and something I wanted to explore. And so the fact that he was looking to incorporate more of that into his farm uh, gave me the opportunity. We just collaborated a lot. And he gave me like a little lab, like which was built off of our walk-in where he just like basically put a desk in there with a microscope and a little light and a notebook. <laughs> and he just like let me test a lot of stuff. Um, but I think the fact that he, yeah, he wanted his farm to kind of revolve around those same principles and really believed in it ideologically uh, just gave me a lot of room before starting my own project to, to practice and to kind of refine some of, um, yeah, taking things from ideas and translating it to the California landscape. Because adapting styles of farming that are originating in East Asia is like very different here. Um, so, yeah, he's the one that gave me the opportunity. So I I think I realized I learned that Korean food was awesome or like <laughs> um, or <laughs> tasted it for the first time when David Chang like most probably oh, non-Koreans wow. was like David Chang <laughs> says it's awesome so I think I'll taste <laughs> Korean food yeah and he he was I mean he was very right it's really it's yeah. great um, and so there's kind of a Korean food craze I, I mean as there should be it's like a, a, it's an amazing food but um, how did that when did you when did you start thinking about Korean food? Well, I hadn't even eaten Korean food until I had lived in Washington. So I was probably like 19 years old and someone was like, there is a pretty significant Korean population like around Olympia. So not in Olympia proper, but in like Tanglewild and Lacey, there's a big there's a Korean market. Um, and so, you know, tried Korean food then and was interested. And and I think I just liked learning about Korean food um, just because I am not super outgoing. And so I never really, I think never wanted the vulnerability of like seeking out a lot of Korean community, having not grown up around it and feeling a little apart from it. Um, so learning about food was just something I could do on my own. And I wanted to sort of figure out what it meant to me, maybe a little bit in isolation because I didn't want it to be so um impacted by other people like an external validation that could or could not come um and then i think yeah just in general kind of really liking plants since i was younger and even like my mom jokes around about like my youngest brother really loves animals she's like you're kevin likes animals more than people you always like plants more than people she's like i've only got one sort of socially well-adjusted child that's my middle brother she's like the other two of you on either end just like mostly prefer the company of these other things to humans uh, and my middle brother is really socially graceful and, and friendly um so i think that 
with plants, it just made sense because there is like a type of connection you can have and something that mirrors something back to you. And I think that I do sort of have the sense that, you know, plants can act as this placeholder and almost like a teacher um, in a different way. And their sort of knowledge, you know, goes back so much longer than what I could learn from uh, another person or yeah, or if I even had access to other people that wanted to share that knowledge at that point. Um, so I think through studying, like, I really like studying, like, the history of plants, the coevolution of plants and people. Um, and so that just has given me what I feel like at this point is, like, a little more solid footing of, of my relationship to having been born in Korea, my identity as a Korean-American, um, and... Yeah, I feel like there is just such a sweet relationship you can have with plants and and just kind of, yeah, what they open up for you. I was reading around the internet preparing and, and I read something about the Shiso, the Korean perilla, was um, kind of a spark of fascination with vegetables. Like, well, uh, how did you find that vegetable or is it an, is it an herb or a vegetable? And, and, <laughs> I, and uh, how did you find that? What was that like? Uh, I found it just in a seed catalog, basically, and I didn't know anything about it, but I I did want to grow something that was distinctly Korean, and so it was kind of like looking at my options and had a small garden, and then, um, yeah, just saw a listing for it and then cross-referenced it with different cookbooks. I was like, oh, it does seem like this is pretty popular. It's an herb, so it should be fairly straightforward, and so grew it. And I do just sort of like yeah, feel nostalgic looking back where I'm like, oh, I didn't even know like what the cotyledons look like. I didn't know what it was going to look like when it germinated. And and just the way you have any sort of like great love, you think about just the time that you invest and and how well you get to know something um, just through experience and years of uh, repetition. Um, and so it was just something where it is just like a really beautiful plant. And so right away... This was really interesting um, and liked growing it on my own. And then I did feel like it was something that when other Korean people would see it or if I brought it somewhere, it's just like such a quick uh, point of reference for people to connect on because it's so ubiquitous. And um, and so I think, yeah, it just I do credit it with like leading me to all these directions where it was like something that start, started very solitary in a way that was comfortable to me with my temperament uh, ended up introducing me and and bringing me into the fold in terms of having like a really robust, really special Korean community in the Bay. Um, and I feel like, yeah, that plant kind of like acted as like, you know, the older wizard, like ushering me into that in this certain way. And so... Uh, yeah, so that was, like, the first thing, and it still is, like, a really indelible. It's, like, another thing that, because it's day-length sensitive, you know, someone recently was just talking about, like, moving to Hawaii, and I was like, well, I have to find out if Perilla will grow there, because it might be too day-neutral, and blah, 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 and so it does sort of, yeah, it will dictate a certain thing, just like, having a certain devotion to it. And um, and how did you end up farming here in Sunil? Well, when I first moved here, I was interested in volunteering for uh, People's Grocery, and they had a plot here. Um, and so, like, two days after I moved here, I just came out and volunteered. And on that day, there was, like, a neighboring farmer who just needed help. Um, 
And so I went and helped him and then he offered me a job. And so then I just started working here pretty much. Um, and so pretty much from the moment I moved to California, apart from the year I lived in Bolinas, I've been at the Ag Park in some capacity. So when I moved back from Bolinas, I approached Fred, the person I had worked for. And uh, he had asked me to come back to work. And I said, like, oh, I have kind of an idea. I want to do like a side project. I had started growing some Korean crops in Bolinas and uh, had been introduced to the brothers who own Namu during that time. I brought them Perilla. And uh, so it told Fred, like, oh, if I come back to work, could we work out something where I could sublease like a certain amount of space on your farm? I want to try growing some stuff for restaurants and specialty markets. He said, fine. And then it ended up that this acre just opened up. And so we just started subleasing from him. Do you sell everything to Namu Gaji? Yeah. So in the beginning, uh, Namu had approached me about growing those chili peppers. And then when this sort of opened up, originally I was going to work at Fred's and kind of was like going to grow, you know, 10 rows of whatever I wanted. Uh, but when this opened up, talked to Dennis and was like, oh, we have this opportunity. Should we, you know... And he wanted to start a separate farm. And so we just decided to collaborate on that. So they invested the money for us to to lease it. So they paid the rent and the water. And then I spent that first year just sort of like uh, trying to see if we could get it operable. And they were really excited, which was unique, about the idea of the way that I wanted to farm using those natural farming methods. And so... In the beginning, it was all an experiment. They invested sort of the capital to start, and I invested the labor with my friend Peter. And, um, yeah, so they took a little bit of a risk because they had said, like, oh, let's do a, a small garden for the restaurant. And I was like, well, I want to do it with, like, no fossil fuel. So that means, like, no mechanization. And it also means, like, I don't want things that have to be, like, you know, industrially extracted from other parts of the world. Like I want all our fertility to be like self-generated. They're like, all right, you know, like kind of believed in it ideologically. Um, and so I think, that, yeah, I just feel really fortunate. It's like, it was just the right relationship because certainly, you know, in our first couple years, especially there were just so many ups and downs with like calibrating this plot to that system, like being so different in terms of nutrient management and, um, yeah, and wanting to invest in long-term solutions and not problem-solving anything with a short-term fix, like, means you just had real variation in terms of, like, something's not working, like, when we would have insects or disease, anything, we approached it with, like, that perspective of, like, let's let things do their thing and if if we lose over half of the crop we have to just let it do that and then we're going to like save seed and select for resilience and so i think having it that just couldn't have happened if they didn't like believe in what we were working towards like if they had to make everything pencil out row by row as a commodity like it would just be too hard and that's why you have farmers that just are in that tough position to have to make make the short term work and we just had the luxury and privilege to not have to do that so we could just like approach it from like how seed breeders look at it like if you don't kill half your crop you're not getting any good data about what is actually resistant yeah, i've heard that from from well not 
not commercial seed breeders, but some kind of renegade seed breeders. Oh, yeah. they, you want to start with the ones that are vulnerable, yeah. and that's how you can build oh. multiple resistance, not just yeah. single trait resistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many how many years have you been saving some of these seeds? Uh, pretty much the whole duration of the farm. So because we're growing such particular things, and because it it came a lot from Dennis uh, Dennis Lee, his family's. Uh, they gave us different seeds to start. So like the mustards, the chilies, the perilla. Um, we just knew we had to save the, our own seeds in the beginning and then uh, started refining that as we went. And then even just after the first year, we hosted like a Korean harvest festival for the holiday Chuseok, which is like Korean Thanksgiving. And all these folks came because we wanted to have this style of uh, traditional drumming that always accompanies agriculture. And so um, we ended up just having tons of folks that I had no idea who they were come out. And then, um, you know, people just responded so quickly to see like something that was really explicitly about Korean food. And so suddenly people were just like giving me seeds that were like from their family or like, yeah, seeds that they wanted like a little bit of access to. So they're like, oh, you could grow this. Can you just give me a little? And so it just sort of evolved from there where suddenly we became this clearinghouse for people to just like send us seeds for. Um, because, you know, we had a lot of especially younger families like approaching us because they really believe in sort of like the food politics of like somewhere like the Bay. But we're limited in having access to like Korean vegetables grown organically. And so they were constantly having to like choose and prioritize, like, do we want to like omit these really significant things and these like things we want our kids to grow up eating, or do we want to prioritize like general health and well being? So. Right. Um, Chelsea, and I have a friend who's an anthropologist. Her name is Anna Singh. And she, um, she, I've heard her a few times talk to young farmers and be like, you got to grow some Asian vegetables. I can't stand it. Like I can't find organic Asian vegetables anywhere. Um, and then everyone's like, yeah, that's a good, I just don't know if people would buy them. Is that, is that true? What do you, I mean, I don't know what, what makes that, uh, yeah. What what makes that difficult to find organic Asian vegetables? Mm. Well, I mean, I know for me, like, I work for an older Korean lady on the weekends who has a mushroom farm. Um, and it is just like, because I would bring her radishes and stuff in the beginning. She'd be like, how much would you charge for this? And I would tell her, you know, honestly, we charged probably $2 a pound. Uh-huh. She's like, oh, you know, at the Korean market, it's this much. Yeah. And so I think it's, I don't think it's unique to Asian vegetables. I think it's just indicative of, like, breaking down like the true cost and the true value of food in general um and people's perception and food access um because i think people ask us a lot about that as well like oh like long beans for example oh you grow long beans super stoked on that but when you go to like the old oakland farmer's market in the summer that's like it's long beans at every stall because it's all the sort of uh Asian farmers coming from different parts of the valley. And so to me, I think like we're in a unique position because we can, uh, yeah, we can leverage our position and we're just articulating so much the importance of organics, but we're kind of within the organic field growing Asian vegetables. And I'd like for us to someday be in a position like to work so that 
those older Asian farmers don't get kind of locked out of like that higher end market. Like we try to brainstorm not just having more young farmers growing Asian vegetables, but to question like, yeah, what are the barriers in perception or the marketplace that dictate to farmers that lower value and then try to address that? And if we can raise the value of that in people's sort of frame of reference, then can other farmers like have the incentives they need to kind of grow organic and get a better price for it? So we've tried to break down what to make a case for in terms of that. Um, and I think it is like a lot of good questions, like similarly to like all the dialogue that happens about, um, you know, culturally specific foods and like authenticity, all of these things. Um, you know, the USDA has allotted more and more money through the years to specialty crop production, including Asian vegetables. And so I think that even amongst other peers, like have the sense that Asian vegetables are seen as something that is a pretty decent margin. And if you can get it dialed in, uh, there is a niche market for it, especially with within the restaurant industry. Um, so I think it is sort of emerging. And my question is more like what will make that economy as it emerges, like the most equitable for, for people who have grown it traditionally or, uh, for immigrant and refugee farmers, like who maybe at different points were told to grow different, higher grossing commodity crops, like strawberries or something, like what would allow them to grow the food that maybe they do care for intending their own stories, um, simultaneous to like, it providing a good anchor for newer and beginning farmers to kind of like have uh yeah better margin on something like um you know like an interesting sort of mustard green versus like a standard salad green or something like that and you've been working with kitazawa seed company right and mm -hmm. and um yeah can you tell me about that collaboration yeah so we do their field trials for them and i was like you know, such an avid customer of Kitazawa for so long. And they, of course, like played a huge role in being able to start this farm and having access. Like I would just scan their catalog. And if anything mentioned it was Korean, I just bought it, <laughs> you know, like figure out if we can grow it later. We'll try all these experiments. But, um, yeah. And I think at one point I was like, had been ordering for them from them for a couple years and it was still like, yeah, fairly in the beginning of the farm. And finally, I called in one day and was like, oh, can I pick it up? I'm in Oakland. Their office is in Oakland. And finally, uh, Maya, the owner, had just said, like, you know, I've been seeing your name on all these invoices. And she's like, I couldn't figure out, like, based on your name, which is not very Asian sounding, why you're buying so much Asian crops. She's like, and then I saw a newspaper article and I realized you are Asian. She's like, so now I got to meet you. So come up to the office. And so through that funny interaction, um, yeah, just started a friendship, <laughs> basically. Uh, it was demystified. Yes, I am Asian. Um, and so, yeah, through that friendship and just like them learning more about my farm and me learning more about just like they both, uh, Maya and Jim, who own it, come from like really rich agricultural legacies in California. Um, and so just they became really strong mentors and really close friends. Um, and they really just started to believe in like some of the data we were collecting about yet yeah, drought and sort of climate change resistant farming methods. Um, and so they have just like 
tried to I you know for them I think in a lot of ways they've just tried to find ways to support me um, because they believe in this and then uh, being their trial farm has been interesting because we just get to try a lot of seeds and try to track and with working with the restaurant it works really well to have that sort of level of integration because we could send it to the cooks and at NAMU and they can give us feedback that then gets filtered into like yeah just what that looks like practically for them to either purchase or not purchase different new varieties. Um, and so it's been a nice partnership. And I know that sometimes they even get calls of like, oh, I had a turnip at dinner at Namu. Like, what turnip is it that they're growing, you know, and sending to the restaurant? Um, and so it's been pretty fun and it's been a really good learning experience. And we get to just try so much stuff. And we get to really see, like, because a lot of the Asian seed industry is so geared towards hybrid production right now. Um, you know, it's been interesting to just see like the access to different Korean varieties of crops that are open pollinated, what's there and what's not, why are those things represented uh, or not represented. And um, so it's been interesting to have that sort of, be able to perceive all of those things from within that industry. And we just get to see like how hybrids factor into kind of this style of farming, which is more akin to, you know, peasant subsistence farming essentially. Um, so just all the criticisms you hear about the green revolution, about like what we're exporting and with these sort of like whole packages of agricultural production, it's you buy the seed, you buy the fertility, um, and just how precarious and dangerous that is. Like we do get to see sort of, those seeds factored into a system that's not suited for that and like what performs well and what doesn't and and just kind of we'll we can put like a hybrid variety next to like maybe an open pollinated variety or something we've saved and at this point feel like we can make a case for just like maybe not on a commercial industrial scale but like for small scale farmers like it truly does behoove you to to have your own sort of seed saving program and regimen seems like like um a lot of really good farmers i've met you're, you're constantly experimenting with things mm-hmm. well, what are the, some of the things that you're experimenting with now or thinking about for next season to kind of to um, to tinker with or to kind of push forward well a lot of it is like mostly self-serving in that we've been the lifespan of the farm has really coincided with the worsening of the drought and we've seen interesting information just in terms of like we're using less and less water each year, but our production has gone continuously up and we're planting more intensively than ever. And I think a lot of the credit for that, along with kind of the soil building practices, is a lot in seed selection and uh, and being thoughtful around that. Um, and so some of it, just most of it is geared towards, yeah, just general growing with less with less water and minimal supplemental fertility. Um, so we'll like, so for eggplant, if we grow four rows of eggplant, we'll grow two for production and then two just for like we were talking about seed saving and like kind of subject that to a little bit gnarlier conditions. Like you have like the ones you coddle a little bit and then the ones you, you know, kind of expose to more stress in, in a somewhat thoughtful fashion. Um, so after a couple seasons of doing that, like we do have our own sort of really vigorous seed stock that, um, is just really tailored to our production. And so we can, um, scale back how much we do have to like 
tend to those things. But we also have had the opportunity to collaborate with other, you know, folks within Organic Seed Alliance, who's doing a lot to try to, um, yeah, really bolster participatory seed breeding for organic production. Um, and so Steve Peters, who's the regional coordinator for the Central Coast, has come out here and we've tried doing a, a broccoli project for him where we grew like 200 broccoli plants for the summer in Sonol, which is basically like putting something in like its own version of hell on earth. And uh, yeah, he was the one who told me like, well, if you get two to produce seed, you will be successful. Like, oh my god, you're just like walking all these little starts off to like a death march. <laughs> like, this is kind of morbid. Um, but yeah, I think just from gleaning some of his knowledge, and and he's a really good teacher, um, has been helpful to kind of formalize it a little bit more. Because before it was just more a matter of like our weird style of farming. We just knew we needed seed that was like going to be able to adapt and show some resilience to growing with less so similar to like yeah old land races and um and now i think we can think a little bit broader vision a little bit more about wanting to provide like some more access to open pollinated asian vegetables than than is currently there and so kitazawa has supported me in wanting to start like a seed line so we have our own seed line with them called like second generation seed line and uh that will focus on all like heirloom open pollinated varieties oh my gosh um so many questions um i guess my biggest question is what sort of and drove you to seek out relationships with restaurants as opposed to doing a more like farmer's market style production um well when i moved here i really do look back and think realize like oh I was such like a little country bumpkin because I think even before I moved to California um just started getting more and more interested in like restaurants and food um and had seen so much of the growing aspect of it but Olympia um doesn't have the same sort of like restaurant economy and like cultural sort of cachet that it does here so I remember even a friend at the library there um putting some books on hold for me from time to time about like yeah cookbooks and food and she put a book about Chez Panisse in my hold account and I read it and I remember being on the farm I was at reading it like, oh, there's this place called Chez Panisse and they buy direct from farms like maybe someday I'll sell vegetables to them <laughs> and the person I was working with was like you know that's like the most famous restaurant in the world right and I was like oh really he's like yeah like quit dreaming about this like that's insane like that's like the most famous restaurant in the world right now he's like yeah right you're gonna sell vegetables to Chez Panisse and I just still remember being like oh wow I had just no concept about the rich history here so when I moved here it was like just kind of exciting and I feel like I learned a lot um you know when I worked for Fred at Bionikia that was a big part of his business was uh kind of like yeah interesting specialty crops basically um and so I saw a lot of facets facets of it and things that I liked and things that I didn't like about just like why edible flowers are like so much more expensive than like a bunch of carrots or something that is actual sustenance um but I do think that yeah partially just fueled by excitement and just like how creative a lot of the people that I got to meet within the restaurant industry were 
Um, I also worked at Camino Restaurant when I first moved here as a cook. And Russ, um, Russ, the owner and chef of that restaurant, like, I just learned so much from him. And getting to see it from that side, from people that really just, like, I... I really do appreciate him specifically because he has such integrity with the way he thinks about food. Um, and a lot of our philosophies, like I felt uh, just a lot of resonance, basically, like a lot of the way I run this farm feels similar to like the ideals he practices at Camino. And um, so I think getting to see it from that and made it feel like something more interesting to just see things transformed or to see it in the hands of people that really respected it. And um and in terms of just sheer practicality, like a lot of the stuff that I did want to grow, um, even thinking about selling it in a place where there is a ton of Korean American community, but not having, you know, a ton of just credibility on my own as an individual, like um, growing for Namu made a lot of sense because they were really enthusiastic about like those longer backstories and wanting heirlooms and not just wanting the like really glossy uh versions of things that are commercially available now and so it's been like an interesting dialogue constantly through the years of just um yeah what varieties are available at somewhere like coriana plaza and why are those the things that are available and a lot of the stuff that we're growing predates some of that and so um it may taste different it may look different um but the partnership with Namu has allowed us to like have those conversations in a way that people just sort of trust or kind of look up to because Namu is such a good restaurant. Um, and so it just gave us a lot of opportunity to um, expedite the process where we weren't introducing things that were like maybe somewhat familiar, but also somewhat foreign in a regular marketplace and let people's sort of like comfort with it build slowly. Like I know a lot of, uh, other farmers like Annabelle Lettering, whose farm La Tercera is like out of Star Route Farm and in Petaluma. Um, she brought a lot of like interesting uh, Italian heirlooms here, you know, decades ago. And she just talks about like being so committed to them because she was really like kind of rigorous in her study of Italian food and like finding interesting seeds. But just that it took so much time for that to build before even something we take for granted like Lasonado Kale you know like it had a period where it was like a kind of a hard sell at a market um so just knowing the resources I had in terms of like capital the ability to kind of like be in the red as a business for how long um just knew that like I did want to grow things that felt like I believed in them and I cared about them and I didn't have like a ton of time to just sort of like let it sit at the market and not sell or try to like constantly be pitching it to people. Um, and with the restaurant too, they can, um, they can make so many value added products and things that are just smart for any small scale farmer to think about, like in terms of converting potential waste or things that are seconds or calls at the market. Like I do think even if we didn't have this exclusive relationship, restaurants would comprise a pretty big part of it just because um, it streamlines a lot of the processes on the, on a small farm. Great. Um, yeah, I think the only other question I, I always love asking people what they enjoy cooking because um, it's something that I'm really passionate about as well. So I know you said you're pretty busy now, but, <laughs> but you know, you said December 1st, maybe that glorious day when it comes and you can cook yourself something for dinner. Uh, what what do you think? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I really, 
I do really enjoy cooking and I feel like I'm surrounded by a lot of creative people and we like cooking together. Um, I really like pretty simple food though, honestly. Like I'm just like, oh, if I just have like a little rice, I like eating pickles. Um, I really in the winter like making, uh, you know, like juke, like rice porridge. Um, so like experimenting with different kinds of that. Um, so that's maybe like one of the comfort foods I look forward to, like slowing down and then being able to eat all through the winter, like just a nice little bowl of porridge. <laughs> awesome. Well, 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 thanks so much. I, uh, this has been really great. It's been great to see your farm and to, to hear the story. So I really appreciate it. No, thank you guys for coming out here. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place. Made by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wills. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any podcast app. And you can learn more at deliciousrevolutionshow.com. There we've got pictures and notes all about the interviews, and you can sign up for our monthly email. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, too. This season of Delicious Revolution was made possible with the support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit www.calhum.org. This season is a collaboration with Food First, and a special thanks to Rebecca Murillo, our intern. <laughs>